Please come in and find a seat. Good morning, everyone. So good to see all of you here. Um, we send our blessings to our friends who are running the 10K. We can sit here and drink, eat donuts instead. Uh, bless them. Um, welcome, friends. So grateful that you're here. Um, grateful that we can be together uh, from at least, I know of at least four different churches. There's four churches that are co-sponsoring this event. Um, Christ Presbyterian, Community West, City Church, and Third Church. And so on behalf of those four churches, we're really grateful that all of you can hear, be here today. Um, just a little bit about our schedule. Um, this is a really simple morning. Um, Wes Hills, our speaker today, and he is going to speak for about 45 minutes, and then we're going to have about 15 minutes of Q&A and then a short break. Um, and then he's going to speak a second time for 45 minutes and have another patch of Q&A. There's essentially two clusters of questions that are animating our conversation this morning. Um, the first cluster would be theological and biblical concerns, and the second would be more pastoral and practical concerns. Um, so the first set of questions really revolves around the question of why should we, uh, as Christians, continue to uphold the traditional biblical sexual ethic? especially given uh, the cultural context that we increasingly find ourselves in. Doesn't this do great harm to our gay friends and family members and neighbors? Isn't it actually more ethical to have a more inclusive vision of sexual faithfulness? And especially in light of a lot of recent revisions and rethinking of even the interpretation of the biblical sexual ethic, um, does it make sense to do that, especially given how little the Bible actually says about homosexuality? So, that will be really the first cluster of concerns that Wes will address today, revolving around the biblical and theological questions. But the second uh, lecture that Wes will give really relates to the more practical and pastoral concerns. And that really arises from the question that if we, as Orthodox Christians, will continue to uphold the traditional sexual ethic, how is that practical and plausible given the cultural context that we live in, especially for those of us who experience same-sex attraction? What needs to change about the social realities of the church to make it a more hospitable environment for gay men and women who are seeking to follow Jesus? Uh, the church often puts the demands of Christian sexual discipleship on individuals without also offering the social conditions to make those demands possible and plausible. And what we're suggesting today is that one of those possibilities is a surprisingly mundane thing, and that is friendship. That friendship and community might be just the radical thing that we need to open up the church to become a more hospitable community. So those are the two clusters of concerns. First, theological, biblical. Second, practical, practical and pastoral. Um, and so let me pray, and I will just welcome Wes right up. Let me just say a bit about who he is. Wes is professor of biblical studies at Trinity School for Ministry, just outside of Pittsburgh. Um, he's a graduate of Wheaton College and got his PhD at Durham University in the UK. Um, he's the author of two fantastic books that I highly commend. The first is called Washed and Waiting, which tells his own journey of sexual identity and his Christian faith, and the second is called Spiritual Friendship. So, so thrilled to have him here today. Um, let me pray for him as he comes. 
Our Father, we thank you that in this bright and glorious spring morning, uh, we can be gathered here in your presence, knowing that your spirit is among us. And so we pray that you would now fill your servant, Wes, and all of us, that we would be open uh, to what you have to teach to us today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Corey, thanks so much. Well, thanks, thanks to Corey, and thanks to all the four churches who have come together to, to sponsor this event. It's, it's very meaningful to me. I, I, um, I'll say a little bit more in just a couple of moments about my own journey, but uh, this is not only professionally meaningful for me to be able to come and, and talk about Scripture and, and open God's Word with you, but it's also just deeply personally meaningful that so many of you would, would want to give up a Saturday morning to think about issues that touch so many of us in the church at such a deep level, such a personal level. So thank you for being here. Thank you for uh, not only uh, listening, but hopefully engaging uh, during the Q&A times and during the break time as I hopefully have opportunity to, to talk with, with many of you uh, more, more personally. Um, I know we just prayed, but, but I'd like to pray uh, just one more time as we begin this morning, if I could. Father, please uh, give me your spirit. Pour out your spirit on me and on all of us in this room as we together uh, search the scriptures and uh, seek to listen to one another and listen to your voice uh, speaking to us through Jesus of your free grace and love to us. And uh, we pray that you would um, bring comfort, bring healing, bring conviction, uh, do so many good things in this room this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, as, as Corey said, I, I sort of am thinking of this morning in two parts. And the first part uh, before the break will be the traditional sexuality, and the second part will be the radical community. But uh, before we begin, I just want to tell you a little bit more about me. Um, as, as Corey said, I, I teach Scripture as my day job. Uh, I, I teach uh, New Testament studies at an Anglican seminary. Um, but I'm also coming at this uh, at, a, at a personal level. I, I was raised in the church. I was raised in Arkansas in a, in a Baptist church, and um, from a very young age really came to own that, uh, came to love Christ, and, and just wanted to go on growing as a Christian. And, you know, I remember coming to my youth pastor when I was about 13 and saying, uh, could we talk about prayer? You know, what does it mean to grow in prayer, and, and how, how, do, how do we uh, come to grapple with Scripture more deeply. And I memorized vast chunks of Scripture. I remember uh, working hard to memorize Romans 6 and Romans 8, and just very eager and very hungry to grow as a Christian. Uh, but at the same time, around that same time that I was, I was asking my youth pastor questions like that, I was also uh, going through puberty and awakening to my sexuality. And I remember that a, a lot of my uh, peers began to talk about uh, becoming attracted to the opposite sex, and I realized that that experience was not happening for me. I was not developing romantic and sexual feelings for the opposite sex. What instead was happening is that I was, I was certainly developing sexually, but I was having those feelings for uh, my peers who were guys, who were men. And I was confused by that. I, I didn't initially know how to uh, grapple with that in light of my faith, and I decided that I would keep it hidden as best I could. So I didn't tell my parents, who loved me very much. I didn't tell my youth pastor, who also cared for me very much. And I, I just thought, you know, this is, this is something that Christians shouldn't be experiencing. It's something I shouldn't be experiencing. Something's gone wrong. I just want to close my eyes to this and hope that this will go away. And I, I sort of kept up that strategy until college days. And in college, I, I think God sort of providentially led me to see that that was not a way to flourish. That was not a way to find healing and hope 
and to, to grow in love for God and, and my assurance of God's love for me. And so um, in God's providence, I, I, it felt like a very risky step at the time, but I took that risky step of, of telling one of my professors, one of my mentors in college uh, about my sexuality. And I said to him, I think I'm, I think I'm gay. I think I'm experiencing same-sex attraction, and I don't really know what to do with that. And that really started me on the journey that I want to talk with you about today, which is how does one uh, bring this experience of same-sex desire, how does one bring this experience of being gay to the church, to Scripture, to God, and find the light of the gospel uh, helping and, and shining light into that experience? And as Corey said, there are sort of at least two big sets of questions that we need to grapple with as we think about that. And the first one is, what, what does Scripture actually say to us about our creation as sexual beings? Uh, does Scripture offer guidance for how to order our sexual lives in Christ? And that's what we'll focus on here uh, at the beginning. Uh, but the second set of questions is, you know, what, what about people like me, frightened teenagers, frightened 20-somethings, uh, lonely 30-somethings, and on and on, who are, who are grappling with the complexity of their sexual identity? whether they're gay like me or bisexual or experiencing some gender dysphoria, you know, what, how, how do we live together as Christians in community and find our, our loneliness diminishing and our togetherness growing? Uh, how do we find real lasting friendship uh, in the church that will allow us to go on in the journey of discipleship? Uh, so those are, the, those are the two sets of questions that we want to think uh, with each other about this morning. And uh, if you brought a Bible, I, I expect that you Presbyterians did bring a Bible, which is which is great. I could not count on that in my own Anglican world. Uh, but if you if you if you brought a Bible or if you brought your phone and want to open up the the Bible app on your phone, I, I want to take us to Matthew 19, uh, which may seem like a bit of a counterintuitive place to start. Uh, typically, when people give talks on sexuality and, and it touches on homosexuality, they would go first to Romans 1. I do want to talk about Romans 1 later, but I want to I take us to Matthew 19. And the reason I want to do this is I think Jesus here helps us frame our question about sexuality in light of the kingdom, in light of the kingdom breaking in. And I want to suggest to you that the question that should be uppermost in your mind and my mind as Christians is how do we have a distinctively Christian view of sexuality? How do we have an evangelical view in the root sense of that word evangelical? That word comes from the word evangel. Uh, in Greek, euangelion, the good news, the good news of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. How do we let the good news of what God has done and is doing and will do in Jesus Christ shape and order our thinking about our sexual lives? That's the key question, and I think Jesus uh, frames this for us very helpfully here. Notice how the chapter begins, Matthew 19. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he cured them there. Now, here's the, here's the scene. Verse 3, some Pharisees came to him, and to test him, they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause. And as you see so often in the Gospels, uh, this is a gotcha question. This is a trap you question. Uh, there, there was a debate uh, that was happening among first century Pharisees about what constituted legitimate divorce. When could you do it and it would be right? 
when could you divorce and it would be good? And there, there were different schools of thought in this. There was a more lenient school and there was a more rigorous school. And they had a, an ongoing debate with one another. And what they're hoping to do here is get Jesus to side with one or the other of those two factions so that the other faction can turn against him. They're trying to trap him. Uh, they're trying to get him caught up in, a, in their debate. And Jesus, as he does so brilliantly and so often in the Gospels, he refuses to accept their question as it stands, and he reframes the question. And that's what I want us to notice uh, this morning. So look at what he does. Uh, in verse 4, Jesus answered, Have you not read that the one who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Uh, Jesus is, is urging a standard beyond what either of the two factions were expecting. Uh, both of the Pharisaic positions wanted to endorse divorce in some form. And Jesus is marching clean off their map and saying, I want to give you a, a radically new way of thinking about this. And, and it's interesting if you trace this out in Matthew's gospel, it, it has echoes of what Jesus has already said earlier in chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount about divorce. Do you, do you remember there in Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32, uh, he says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And the sort of rhetorical climax of that scene in the Sermon on the Mount is when Jesus shocks everybody by saying in verse 20 of Matthew 5, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, Jesus is announcing a radically new call to righteousness that does not conform to anybody's expectations of what righteousness amounts to. And the reason Jesus can do that is because he himself, in person, is the embodiment of the reign of God, the end-time, long-awaited kingdom of God, the kingship of God, the reign and rulership of God breaking into the world. The kingdom has come, and that means everything has to be rethought from top to bottom. Everything we thought we knew about marriage, everything we thought we knew about obedience, everything we thought we knew about what it means to be right before God has to be rethought and reordered around this new reality of the kingdom of God breaking in in Jesus' ministry. That's what Jesus says to the Pharisees in Matthew 19, and that's what they're shocked by. But look at how the passage goes on. Uh, they said to him, verse 7, Why then did Moses command us to give a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her. You can tell they're scrambling. They're saying, Jesus, here you are counseling us not to get divorced, but, 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 but what about Moses? And look at how Jesus responds. It's very interesting. He said to them, verse 8, it was because you were so hard-hearted that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for unchastity and marries another, commits adultery. Jesus is, is granting to the Pharisees, yes, 
there's a provision for divorce in the Mosaic law. There's a provision for divorce in the Old Testament. But can you notice, that's a concession. That's an allowance, recognizing human fallenness and weakness. But from the beginning, from the very original founding of the world, that is not what God intended. It brings to mind that that wonderful book title by uh, Neil Plantinga. He wrote a book about sin years ago called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. I think that's a really nice summary phrase of, of where we live. We live in a world marked by sin and death and fallenness, and that's not the way it was meant to be from the beginning. From the beginning, it was not so. Now, why do I bring all this up? Well, it's because I think Jesus has just given us a kind of master class in how to understand the, the whole of history here. He's given us a framework for thinking about our, our entire lives, not just our sexual lives, but certainly including our sexual lives. N- notice how he gives us, in, a, in effect, three different moments or chapters in the story of, of God's people with God. First, there's the chapter of the good creation. Jesus reaches back to a time that he calls the beginning. This is when God made the world good. This is when God showed his intentions for the world in Genesis. And Jesus actually quotes from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. It's very interesting. He fuses together the, the affirmation that we were created by God as male and female, Genesis 1:27, with the later affirmation in Genesis 2:24 that for that reason, a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two will become one flesh. He reaches back and says, this is how God originally meant the world to be. This is what goodness looks like in our sexual lives. But secondly, he also introduces the notion of a, of a distorted creation. There's the original good creation, but there's also a distortion. There's a, there's a fallenness. There's a hard-heartedness, he calls it, that came in. And, and we know the story. The serpent tempts the man and the woman. They rebel against God. They reject God's good ordering for their lives. And as Paul says in Romans 5, that unleashes in the world a torrent of sin and death that none of us can escape from. We're born in a condition of sin and death. We're born in a condition of hard-heartedness. And that's the tragic second chapter of the story. But thirdly, Jesus also introduces the notion of creation regained, creation redeemed. He says, now, you Pharisees are trying to act as if the second chapter is the only chapter that exists, the chapter of human hard-heartedness, and you're trying to figure out how to make your peace with the world as it exists now. You're trying to go on debating with each other how, how and when do we get to divorce, and what you're neglecting to open your eyes to is that there's a new chapter in the story now, a third chapter. There's not just the original good creation, there's not just the distorted creation, but now there's creation regained, creation being redeemed creation being set free from its bondage. And that's because of Jesus. Jesus is standing there saying, open your eyes. The kingdom of God, the long-awaited rule and reign of God is breaking in. And that means a whole new way of living is now possible. A whole new way of ordering your sexual lives. Formerly, you were interested in making your peace with sin, making your peace with hard-heartedness, but now you can actually live into or begin to live into a righteousness that even surpasses the debates of the scribes and the Pharisees. You can now embrace a way of life that is radically new, radically formed by the kingdom. I think this is profoundly helpful for us as we think about issues like bisexuality, homosexuality, Uh, transgender questions, this is the framework I think we ought to have in our minds, this threefold framework of a good creation, 
a distorted creation and a regained creation in Jesus Christ. In this framework, whenever we face a question about our sexual lives, whenever we grapple with a question about how ought we to live with our bodies before God and with others, we ought to be asking ourselves three questions in light of those three chapters. Uh, Number one, how is my sexuality pointing to some fundamental good of creation? Number two, how is my sexuality marked by brokenness and sin and rebellion and hard-heartedness? And number three, how is my sexuality witnessing to the new reality of God's reign in Jesus Christ that has broken into the world? And I want to suggest that that's the way we might approach this very difficult issue of of the reality of, of, of gay desire and gay people like me in the church. How does, how does my sexuality testify to some originally good creation? How does it also participate in the fallenness and the, the rebellion and the sin of the world? And how is God reclaiming me? How is God redeeming me? How is God redeeming you in your sexual uh, life? I want to take us now uh, to Romans 1, just briefly, um, because I think what we can see here is, is a kind of biblical diagnosis of that second chapter of the story, how things uh, go wrong. Um, the background of this story is, is Genesis. Um, and, we, and we saw Jesus uh, referencing Genesis in Matthew 19. Jesus is reaching back to the beginning of the story, our creation as male and female. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's very interesting to, to go back and look at the original vision of God for human flourishing. Um, Augustine famously summarized it as, as having three parts, kind of three-corded, three uh, three-stranded cord, if you like. Um, Augustine said that God instituted marriage uh, for the spouses. Uh, Adam beholds this woman who God has built for him, and he says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and they're brought together, and they can now become one flesh. But it's not just about the good of the spouses. Augustine said it's also about the good of the world. Uh, these, these two human beings are blessed, and they're given the blessing of being fruitful and multiplying, and the, the rest of the story of Genesis is marked by these genealogies as the, as the story of fruitfulness and procreation goes forward. So this union of male and female is not just for their own good, but it's also for the good of society. It's for the good of the world. And then thirdly, Augustine said, it's not just about the good of the couple. It's not just about the good of the world. It's for, this, for God's own sake. And what you find is you, as you trace the story of male and female throughout the rest of the Old Testament, it becomes a sign and a symbol and a parable of how God is committed to his people, Israel. You can see that in Hosea, for example. God, God uses this imagery of marriage as a way to say, that's how committed I am to my people, Israel. But all of that goes wrong. All of that gets twisted. And that's what we see Paul diagnosing in Romans 1. Carl uh, Barth famously called uh, Romans chapter 1, the night. That was his title for this chapter. The the darkness of the night is what we read about in Romans 1. And and very famously, Paul sort of zeroes in. There's there's a lot of different distortions of of human uh, virtue and and human createdness that he could have focused on. And indeed, he lists many, many sins. But he sort of zeroes in on the sexual disordering of our lives. Uh, Look at how he does this. Um, In verse 18 of Romans chapter 1, he says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who, by their wickedness, suppress the truth. He's talking about all of us here. We have all um, 
tamped down. We've, we've suppressed the truth that we ought to know and love and cherish about God. For, verse 19, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. So they are without excuse. And now here's the, the clencher. This is his ultimate diagnosis of you and me and every one of us who's ever lived. Verse 21, for though they knew God, though human beings knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human being or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. It's an image of idolatry. All of us, instead of holding God in our hearts as the one we worship, have, have traded in the worship of God and, and gone after creatures, fellow creatures, images that look like us. We were made for transcendence. We were made for worship. And instead, we've traded in that worship and have set our affections and our hearts on idols. And uh, it's very interesting the way Paul does this here. He's, he's clearly drawing on Jewish uh, polemics against Gentiles, but he's also drawing on the stories in the Old Testament about Israel's own exchange. Rather than worship the God who rescued them from Egypt, what did the Israelites do immediately after they get to the, to the Sinai wilderness? They build a golden calf. They trade in the worship of God for the worship of an idol. All of us have done this, Jew and Gentile, Jew and Greek, no matter who you are, no matter what your religious or ethnic background is, we are all caught up in this spiral of idolatry. Now look at what Paul says next. Uh, Therefore, verse 24, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the degrading of their bodies among themselves. Uh, The imagery here is of God uh, surrendering humanity to what we are craving. We're craving idols. God says, the worst thing I can do, uh, the penalty for this error is to deliver you up to what you most want. And that's what happens. Uh, Because Verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And now we come to the famous passage about same-sex sexual relations. And I want to try to draw out what I think Paul is really doing here. Uh, Verse 26, for this reason, God gave human beings up to degrading passions. Their women exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural, And in the same way also, the men giving up natural intercourse with women were consumed with passion for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the due penalty for their error. And Paul goes on from there to list many other distortions that mark all of our communities, all of our lives. Uh, All of us are mired in this condition of sin. But notice Paul's diagnosis here. Uh, Paul, reaching back to Genesis, I think, there are all sorts of allusions to the story of Genesis here in Romans 1. Paul, Paul reaches back and says, if we were made uh, to come together as, as male and female and, and be one flesh, that's now been twisted. If we were made to, to bear children and, and procreate for the good of the world, uh, that's now come to an end with this this. Uh, turning in upon one another, turning in upon the same sex. And if we were made to image God's love for the church, that too has now been distorted. All three goods of marriage 
as we see them in Genesis, have now been twisted, have now been misshapen, have now been misdirected to different ends. Simon Gathercole, one of my uh, favorite uh, New Testament scholars, he tries to summarize this really dark picture here in Romans 1 by saying this, humanity should be oriented toward God, but turns in on itself. Woman should be oriented toward man, but turns in on itself. Man should be oriented toward woman, but turns in on itself. These sexual Uh, misdirections of our lives are not the main part of the story. The main part of the story is the ultimate idolatry of preferring not to have God in our hearts and turning to images of fellow creatures. And everything else is simply a symptom of that. That's the second chapter of the story, a good creation gone wrong. But as Paul goes on in Romans, he doesn't end there. And uh, Bart's chapter, The Night, is followed up by a chapter on the dawning of the day the breaking in of the light. And we see in the rest of the book of Romans how God is reclaiming sexually broken people of all different stripes. And the climax of Romans is that wonderful verse in chapter 3 when uh, Paul says, but now, now the righteousness of God has been revealed. And God put forward Christ as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood to be received by faith so that now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and we begin to take on the, the, the mindset and the walk of life in the Spirit. So I like the way my friend Steve Holmes describes this. He says, in this third chapter, uh, Good Creation, chapter 1, Creation Distorted, chapter 2, in this third chapter in which we now live, of creation being regained and redeemed in Jesus Christ, we are now beginning to find healing we are now beginning to find redemption for our multiple sexual misdirections. And my friend Steve says this, all people are fallen and multiply broken. All our desires are warped and twisted out of their proper shape. And the story of warped desires being disciplined and reordered seems to me to be somewhere near the heart of a biblical theology of sexuality. Let me read that again. I think that's profoundly helpful. All people are fallen and multiply broken. All our desires are warped and twisted out of their proper shape. And the story of warped desires being disciplined and reordered seems to me to be somewhere near the heart of a biblical theology of sexuality. Christianity, uh, the gospel, Uh, Sexuality in light of the kingdom is about reaching back behind, as Jesus did, back behind the hard-heartedness of chapter 2, reaching back to the originally good creation and reclaiming it and redeeming it so that we might now, for the first time, begin to live into it. We're not stuck in chapter 2. We're not stuck in Romans 1. We're not stuck in the night. We can now begin over the long haul, not not perfectly overnight, but progressively over a lifetime. We can now begin to find our sexual lives sanctified, purified, disciplined, and redirected toward what God originally had in mind in the beginning. That's the story, as Steve says. That's the story that the Bible wants to tell, the story of warped desires being reordered. I like the way Eugene Rogers uh, says this. Marriage in Christianity is best understood as an ascetic practice. In other words, a practice of self-denial, a practice of of purifying. 
It's an ascetic practice of and for the community by which God takes sexuality up into God's own triune life, graciously transforming it so as to allow the couple partially to model the love between Christ and the church. God is in the business of of taking the brokenness and the the twistedness and the warping of chapter 2 and and reclaiming it and and healing it and forgiving it and purifying it so that chapter 3 can be a story of, of redemption. It can be a story of creation being regained. But I want to take us back to Matthew 19, and this is where I want to uh, finish before we uh, move on to Q&A and discussion with one another. Jesus actually doesn't end in Matthew 19 by talking about marriage and divorce only. Uh, I didn't finish reading the story. So uh, if, you, if you look at verse 10, his disciples are there. They're witnessing this exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees. They're hearing Jesus say, now in chapter 3, now that the kingdom is here, the divorce is, is off the table. It's not the norm anymore. We're not making concessions to human hard-heartedness anymore. And his disciples are shocked by this. Look at verse 10. They said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. In other words, if this is the standard now, if this is what it means to live in light of the kingdom, no one can live up to that. It's better to just let it go. It's too idealistic. And notice how Jesus responds. Verse 11, he said to them, not everyone can accept this teaching, but only those to whom it is given. It's hard to know exactly what he means there. Is he saying that not everyone can accept the teaching that he's just given to the Pharisees about marriage? Or is he saying not everyone can accept the teaching that you disciples have just given, that it's better not to marry? There's a little bit of ambiguity there. But I think it becomes clearer as he goes on. Uh, Look at verse 12. He says, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. In other words, there are people who uh, are born with the incapacity for marriage, physical incapacity for marriage. Uh, There are people who are born with with birth defects or or, or some other kind of uh, genetic abnormality that makes them uh, unable to marry and procreate as they might wish. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. Jesus' disciples surely would have been familiar with this in the ancient world. There were there were uh, eunuchs who were forcibly castrated so that they could serve as slaves in the, in the court of, of wealthy aristocrats so that these people could trust that their slaves wouldn't interfere with their own marriages. And this would have been a common thing in the ancient world. And Jesus' disciples are sort of scratching their head at this point. And then Jesus says this, And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, There are certain people who are following me, Jesus says, who are voluntarily living without sex, who are doing what you just said. Maybe it's better not to marry. But they're doing that for the sake of the kingdom. They're willingly foregoing the experience of sex. They're willingly foregoing the experience of marriage so that they can direct their lives to the kingdom. I think that's the key to this whole passage. Jesus wants to say in chapter 3, as God is reclaiming creation, as God is redeeming human sexuality, what it's fundamentally all about is ordering our lives to the kingdom, or as I like to translate it, the reign of God, the rulership of God. And you can do that even if you're living without marriage. 
that would have been a shock to the disciples. Uh, remember, in this culture, marriage would have been the norm. If you read the Old Testament, uh, singleness is not something to ever be sought after. It's not something to ever be celebrated. In fact, there's laments about it in the book of Jeremiah. Uh, it's not something that's on the table. Uh, but here, Jesus says, in light of the kingdom, people can now practice faithful marriage, willingly giving up the option of easy divorce. And people can now let go of marriage altogether and commit themselves to celibacy. And the key factor is that both of those conditions, whether faithful marriage or faithful singleness, bear witness to are for the sake of the reign of God. Things become a little bit clearer a couple chapters later in Matthew 22 when Jesus uh, says um, uh, about the resurrection in verse 30. He says, in the resurrection, in the, in the future consummation of chapter 3. Chapter 3 is a very long chapter. It's been going for 2,000 years now. Uh, and I hope it doesn't go too much longer, but it might. Uh, Rowan Williams said one time, what if we're still living in the early church right now? Oh, let's hope not. <laughs> but chapter 3 is a long chapter. It's, 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 it's the new creation still going. But there's coming a time when it will wrap up, when chapter 3 will be done, and there will be the capital R resurrection of the body the final new creation in which all tears will be wiped away, death and hell will be no more, will be with Christ forever. And in that state, Jesus says, Matthew 22, verse 30, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. In other words, Jesus says, to order your sexual life now is to set your sights on that reality. It's to set your sights on the future resurrection and both marriage now and celibacy now can do that. That's the point of Matthew 19. If you're married now, your marriage can be a signpost and a, a, a preview, a teaser trailer for what's coming. And if you're single like me, if you're celibate, if you're intentionally giving up marriage and childbearing and you're committing yourself to the single life, that too can witness to the kingdom because the kingdom is a time in which the earthly parable of marriage is going to be swallowed up in the great marriage supper of the lamb. That's marriage in the kingdom. And all of us at that point will be like the angels. We won't be united to one another in marriage as we know it. And that opens up a space for someone like me to say, I'm going to forego the earthly parable now. I'm going to let go of the earthly signpost and set my sights completely on the capital M, marriage supper of the Lamb. And I'm going to try to make my body, my life, my sexual life a witness and a signpost to that coming kingdom. I love the way uh, Oliver O'Donovan uh, puts this, and, and I want to I close with this. Um, Oliver O'Donovan invites us to think about that coming kingdom. And he says, humanity in that time, humanity in the resurrection at the end of chapter 3, will know a community, we will be part of a community, in which the fidelity of love that earthly marriage makes possible now will be extended beyond the limits of marriage. To this hope, the New Testament church bore witness by fostering the social conditions which could support a vocation to the single life. The New Testament church conceived of marriage and singleness as alternative vocations or callings. Both are honored. Both are legitimate. 
each a worthy form of life, O'Donovan says. The two together comprising the whole Christian witness to the nature of affectionate community. The one declared that God had vindicated the order of creation. That's what marriage is. God is taking up that good chapter one, that good creation, and he's vindicating it. He's saying, that was good in the beginning, and I'm going to allow my people to live into it once again in Jesus Christ. Marriage is good. Marriage is honored, and the New Testament church honored that. The other vocation, singleness, pointed beyond marriage to its end-time transformation. Your marriage one day will be transformed. Your marriage will be swallowed up into the reality of which it is only now a pointer. The reality is the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's what you're called to bear witness to now in your, in your fidelity to one another. And my singleness can point to the same thing insofar as that capital M marriage, that resurrection state is one in which they neither marry nor are given in marriage because the marriage that we will all enjoy is feasting around that banquet table with Christ, our Savior, celebrating his righteousness, celebrating the consummation of his reign, celebrating the time when all his enemies are finally subdued under his feet. And our calling now as believers in Christ is to bear witness to that, to testify to that by the way we order our sexual lives, to live into that, and to be a a sign of it to a world that so desperately needs to see it. Would you please pray with me? Father, we thank you for chapter 3. We thank you for the fact that the brokenness of creation is not the final story. You are reclaiming us. You are redeeming us. You are drawing us to you. We give you thanks in Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks, Wes. Um, We're going to now have a pretty spacious time of Q&A, because I'm sure that um, you all have lots of questions. And um, let's see, Tracy and Will will be roaming around with a handheld mic. So if you have a question, just raise your hand, and they will come to you. And if you could um, ask your question, and just keep these things in mind. First of all, this is being recorded, and we're going to make it publicly available. So um, just do keep keep that in mind, and you ask your question uh, to just be aware of sensitive information. And the second thing I just want to remind you of is that, um, you know, we, we all look nice today, but we all carry all sorts of different stories. Um, we are all in different places here today, not just in lifestyle, but even in what we think about these issues. And so I just want you to keep that in mind, um, to assume that we are a, a motley collection of people, and to ask your question in such a way that shows sensitivity and love. Um, so that being said, here we go. So, pretty clearly, celibacy is not for everybody. Um, you can think of it as a special calling. Um, question is, by being born homosexual or whatever other thing, does that mean you are by definition called to be celibate? Yeah, thanks. I, I, I think, um, how do I, I want to? say this. Um, I think that the vision I just presented holds out for Christians 
uh, two ways that God wants to redeem and reorder our sexual lives. Uh, marriage, and, and marriage being defined as the union of male and female, uh, ordered to procreation and bearing witness to God's love for the church in Christ, or celibacy. Um, those are the only two uh, vocations that I can discern in Scripture that God has given us to live into as Christians. Um, having said that, the Bible doesn't know about a category of gay and lesbian people. That's not the way it thinks. It, it thinks about uh, particular sex acts. You know, when I read in Romans 1, it, it talks about um, men committing uh, with other men specific acts, it says. It doesn't talk in our language of sexual orientation. Um, so the question is, you know, for us, we now think of a certain population of people as gay people. That's their identity. Uh, that's, that's who they are. That's who I am. I'm born that way. So now, hearing those two vocations in Scripture, marriage or celibacy, suddenly sounds not only that it's prohibiting certain behaviors on my part, but that it's actually calling into question my very identity, who I am. And I just think we need to be honest about the fact that um, the Bible really doesn't see it that way. The Bible doesn't view itself as, as condemning my sexual identity or, or condemning my, my, um, my very personhood. That's, that's just not the category the Bible's working with. The Bible's saying, here are the vocations. Any sex acts that happen outside those vocations are sin. Um, if, if you're a heterosexual couple and you're having sex outside of marriage, the Bible would call that sin. Uh, if you're a same-sex couple and you're having sex outside of, of this marriage and celibacy, the Bible would call that sin. Uh, the Bible names specific actions as, as missing the mark, as falling short of the glory of God, to use Paul's language in Romans 3. So what I think the Bible calls us to is foregoing those acts. Now, does that mean then that a person who's gay like me is, at, is automatically called to celibacy? I'm not sure I'd want to put it that way, and, and the reason I wouldn't is that I, I know of, of um, um, same-sex attracted people who have ended up getting married to someone of the opposite sex, and they've said, you know, this is, um, this is something I feel called to. I mean, I'm thinking, for example, of my friend Kyle Keating, um, who, who does some speaking with me occasionally on these things. Kyle is someone who um, uh, found himself to be gay when he was in high school. He was only attracted to men. And, you know, wanted to follow Christ and, and didn't feel that same-sex marriage was a biblically faithful way to go for him. And he, he fell in love with the woman who's now his wife. And he said, that's a complete mystery to me because I, I really do love her. I desire her, but I don't desire any other women. And they've gotten married and they've just had their first child. Uh, so I don't think Kyle is called celibacy, even though he's same-sex attracted. I think he really is called to this marriage with, with Christy. Um, so I would want to say all same-sex attracted Christians are called to refrain from same-sex sexual acts. I think that's the teaching of Scripture. Um, there's no biblically legitimate place for same-sex sexual activity. For most gay people, that's going to mean celibacy. But there are going to be people, I think, like my friend Kyle, for whom it won't mean celibacy. That's the way I think through that. I, I'm, I know that is probably raises a million more questions, but that's, that's, my, uh, that's my perspective on it. Just a couple, couple things to note about what you said. One is, do you think it's helpful to distinguish attraction from orientation, from yeah. behavior, from lifestyle? I think absolutely. That's something that yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, you know, Mark Yarhouse has done a lot of good yeah. work on this, that 
we need to we need to be able to analyze what is this phenomenon of being gay, and there's different parts of it. Uh, exactly like you said, Corey, there, there's the there's the attraction, there's the behavior, and then there's the the culture, the identity, and and those are those can go together, but they don't have to go together. You know, so someone like like Kyle would say, you know, I have this desire, I have this attraction, um, but I'm choosing not to make it my identity, you know, and I'm choosing to refrain from the behaviors that are usually associated with it. And for someone like me, I'm saying I have the attraction, um, I'm even willing to use the label gay, but I'm not having gay sex because I think that's, I think I'm not called to that. I don't think scripture wants that for me. I don't think God wants that for my Christian experience. So, so I, I, will, I will usually say something like I'm a celibate same-sex attracted Christian or a, or a celibate gay Christian just to signal that there's a distinction going on here between my orientation, my attraction, and my behavior. Right. Yeah. I think another thing to note is that I think, especially within the 20th century, in the conservative side of the Christian church, um, we haven't necessarily raised celibacy as an option yeah. for yeah. Christians who experience same-sex attraction. And so our only option has been conversion to right. heterosexuality right. Um, in an opposite-gendered marriage. And I think that has done great violence and, and hurt in many ways Absolutely. To, to Christians who experience same-sex attraction. And so I think you upholding celibacy yeah. as not just a, um, you know, a last-ditch resort, but as a high calling of yeah. Scripture in itself yeah. of the same is, mm. is actually offers far more than mm. has been historically offered in the mm. past in mm. the evangelical church. It, absolutely, yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I think there's been a lot of harm that Christians have done when, I mean, I remember going to a Christian counselor once and he said, I can, I can promise you, and he said this, I can promise you categorically that if you, if you go through this regimen of therapy, you can become heterosexual. And I, th I think we've really damaged people by, by offering those kind of categorical promises. I don't, I don't think there's any scriptural warrant for that. And, and that can very quickly crush a person's faith because they say, well, you know, that hasn't happened for me. There must be something wrong with my faith. I'm going to ditch the whole Christianity thing altogether. And um, so, so I think we need, to, we need to have a healthy theology of what, what New Testament scholars call the already and the not yet, right? The kingdom is already profoundly here. God is working miracles among us. But we're not yet at the resurrection of the body. We're not yet at the new creation. And we live in this in-between time, in between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And so we can pray for healing, and God often answers that prayer and heals dramatically. But we can also pray for healing, and sometimes like Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, the answer is, I'm not going to take that thorn away. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. And, uh, you know, that's, that's where I find myself. I have not experienced any change in my sexual orientation um, and so celibacy is, is what I feel called to, not, not this orientation change um, that I think we sometimes um, wrongly promise to gay people. Mm. Eric. Hey, Wesley, thanks for being here this weekend. Um, my question, I think, pushes in the direction that you have already gone a little bit. And mm. uh, th there are certain people, probably people you've had conversations with who would agree with what you've said about Romans 1 and mm. the distortion the degradation of sex, but they would say in, in that passage that it's talking about a specific form of same-sex right. sexuality, um, right. especially related to power dynamics. Yes. How would you interact with that argument from yeah. a biblical perspective? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, for those of you who maybe are not quite sure what we're talking about here, 
there's, there's a certain kind of reading of Romans 1 that says, you know, Paul only knew about um, violent or exploitative forms of homosexuality. And if he had known what we know today about monogamous, faithful, um, same-sex partnerships, he would not have written Romans 1 in the way that he did. And, um, you know, I, I think the first thing to say is uh, I think we as Christians should be able to tell the truth and not try to uh, paper over the truth that there are really legitimate, faithful same-sex partnerships. I don't think we do ourselves any favor when we just say that all same-sex relationships are somehow marked by promiscuity or, or violence or anything like that. That's just not true. You know, I know, I know gay couples who are, who are um, profoundly faithful and, and gentle and committed and to one another and, and, and to, the, to the communities that they belong to. Uh, Karl Barth, who, who was opposed to homosexuality, actually said in his church dogmatics that um, he, he knew of certain same-sex partners, partnerships that were redolent of sanctity. That's the <laughs> phrase he uses. In other words, they, they, had, they had aspects of, of, of virtue uh, about them, and, and we, we need to be able to say that. But having said that, um, I, I think that when you read Romans 1 in light of Genesis, the connections leap off the page. I mean, Paul talks about, Gen uh, Paul, sorry, Paul talks about creation in Romans 1. He, he uses some of the same Greek words that the Greek translation of Genesis 1 and 2 use. He's clearly thinking about Genesis. And, and I think what, what he finds problematic in same-sex relationships is not, um, is not just the power dynamic. It's not just the master-slave dynamic. It's actually that to, to try to unite sexually with someone of the same sex is a, is a, uh, it's a missing the mark. It's a distortion of God's created order. Um, so, so if, if, if the original creation is male and female, blessed by God for procreation, coming together in marriage, if that's the vision, if that's, if that's how God wanted things to be before sin intervened and ruined everything, um, that's what Paul, that's what Paul finds problematic about them. And, um, I, there's, there's a book that just came out, uh, that I contributed a chapter to called Two Views on Homosexuality, the Bible, and the Church. You can get it for 10 bucks on Amazon, I think, um, but I try to I try to show this in that in that book that that really Paul is thinking about Genesis, and he's not primarily thinking about um, the first century dynamics that he may or may not have known about. Uh, I mean, I'm sure he did know about um, you know the way that many homosexual relationships were violent, but that doesn't seem to be what he's choosing to single out. He's he's actually he's actually thinking in light of Genesis. So that's a short answer. I know it's probably not super satisfying, but um, yeah, you can you can go check out my essay to see how I flesh it out. I hope my question doesn't um, take us completely off the map, but in thinking about your description of the created order and the use of marriage, um, what comes to my mind is uh, contraception. Mm. Uh, apparently, before the 1920s, most Protestant denominations were vocally opposed to contraception, yeah. and that changed very quickly. Yeah. And Part of my interest in this is personal because I have family members who became Roman Catholic over the issue of uh, birth control and family size. And I just wonder if you have an opinion about that or if you've given any thought to it. I realize that you may not have. But <laughs> no, I, I mean, the honest answer is I am thinking it through, present tense. Um, uh, it was actually my church. It was the Church of England, their Lambeth conference in the, somewhere in the 30s that, that was the first Protestant denomination to actually say, 
there could be legitimate uses of contraception and in, in one of their official documents. And, um, and it's very interesting to go back and look at it. It's very qualified. It's not a free-for-all. It's not like, you know, go crazy with contraception. It's, <laughs> it's you know, under, under certain circumstances, this, this would be permissible. So, so it's, it's a cautious statement. But obviously, I think we're now in a position where many, many Protestants, many, many evangelicals just don't, don't think about it much at all. You know, it's just kind of a given. Um, yeah, I mean, so I, I suppose I would say, and, and this is just my, my kind of off-the-cuff thought, I, I'm, I'm, I'm drawn to the view that the ethicist Paul Ramsey uh, from Princeton um, uh, Seminary um, offered years ago, where he said that if the Catholic view is that every single sex act should be open to procreation, um, perhaps a more evangelical view would be that every marriage should be open to procreation, but there might still be cases where uh, um, uh, cautious use of contraception within marriage would be Christianly appropriate. And he, he's argued this in, in, in one of his books. And I, I'm, I'm sort of attracted to that view because I'm, I'm nervous about, I mean, I have, I have uh, Christian couples that I know who, who say, you know, we just don't want children, and, and they're pretty honest, you know, we, we enjoy not having children. We enjoy being able to order our lives the way we want to order them, and I, I, I worry about that kind of posture. You know, I worry, I worry that if that's the way we want to go, if that's if that's a, a legitimate Christian option, then then why are we singling out same-sex relationships as, as uniquely bad? You know, if we've if we've turned marriage into something that's just about the couple, it's just about mutual love. Then why does the gender of the partners matter anymore? So, so I'm still thinking it through, but, but that's, that's my instinct is to go with Paul Ramsey on that and say that Christian marriage, um, I mean, the way, the way my church, so I, I'm in the Episcopal Church, and, and in our 1979 Book of Common Prayer, um, the, the marriage service says, you know, marriage has been ordained by God in creation. Jesus sanctified this way of life by his presence at the wedding at Cana in Galilee, um, and, and marriage should be open to children when God wills. Um, I, I think that language is is helpful, and I, I I appreciate that procreation is still there in the prayer book, but it's qualified, recognizing that there are there are circumstances where, you know, due to health concerns or whatever else, contraception may indeed be appropriate, and in in fact, infertility, as we know, is is a is a painful reality. I mean, some of my best friends right now are going through profound grief over their inability to conceive, and that's something that I would very much want to walk alongside. Christians in. So, I'm sorry, that's just a, a bundle of incoherent thoughts, but <laughs> yeah. Henry. Um, how, what's the, what would be the appropriate response to people, including Christians and um, some even ministers who have said that if the church doesn't involve its teaching on traditional sexuality, that the church might become irrelevant? How do you think we should um, best respond to that mindset or perspective? So the question is, if we don't change our view to allow for same-sex marriage, we'll become irrelevant? Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm very nervous about right side of history sort of arguments because I think it's very difficult to read history uh, uh, well. You know, um, who is it who said history has to be lived forwards but understood backwards? Something like that. You know, it's often hard to, to see which direction history is going. Uh, my friend Alan Jacobs tells the story of in the 19th century, one Easter Sunday, there were six people at the Holy Communion service at St. Paul's Cathedral in London. So the, the 
greatest cathedral in the very heart of one of the world's great cities had only six people uh, show up for Holy Communion. And everybody sort of taking the temperature of the air, you know, trying to see which way the wind was blowing might say the church is irrelevant and it's going to be dead in, in a few years. And that has not been the case. Um, surprisingly, God renewed the Church of England and and, you know, there was the Anglo-Catholic movement, there was the evangelical revival that's still thriving, and, you know, there's churches in the heart of London now that are, that are just filled to the breaking point. So, so I think it's very hard to sort of say, um, you know, this is, this is going to be the outcome of history. And, and I certainly think that, um, you know, Western culture is, is, seems to be trending in the direction of greater and greater departure from Christian sexual norms. Um, I mean, we, we, we are fast embracing uh, a whole variety of, of sexual practices that are the fruit of the sexual revolution in the 1960s that I think really have no basis in Christian theology as, as we've known it for the last 2,000 years. Um, but does that mean that the, that the church just needs to catch up with the times? I'm, I'm not convinced. You know, I think that, I think that it means... Um, we need to hear the very real pastoral questions that contemporary people bring to us. We need to weep with those who weep. We need to enter into the complexity of what it means to be gay or trans or bi. We need to feel this very deeply. But I don't think that it should lead us to revise our entire understanding of, of creation and, and sexual flourishing and marriage. I, I think we, we, can, we can find a way to winsomely present uh, what the truth of Scripture is in, in, a, in a world that's increasingly not understanding it. Um. Um, would you, s I, I think I know the answer to this question, but uh, does marriage have to be inherently sexual, or is there a place for a committed, exclusive relationship that is also celibate? Um, yeah, that's that's... It's really interesting. I, I think that that marriage, um, as I understand it, in in light of Genesis and Matthew and and Scripture, is marked by these three goods of what Augustine called uh, fides prolace and sacramentum, fidelity, exclusive bonding of the spouses, um, openness to children, uh, to new life, and an image of God's love for the church. That's that's the meaning of marriage. But, and this is where we'll go with the next lecture, I, I, I don't think that marriage is the only relationship of fidelity and, and, and permanence and commitment. Um, you know, uh, I, I think one of, the, one of the fascinating untold stories of church history is this story that I try to tell in my book, Spiritual Friendship, where, um, you know, pairs of friends often, often vowed commitments to one another and were, were even buried with one another in, in, in places and, um, you know, and left, left their property to one another. I mean, th these, were, these were deep, committed relationships that weren't sexual, that weren't um, defined by, by, by sexual activity. And I don't see any reason why the church can't continue to celebrate those kind of relationships. Um, I mean, uh, you know, so I, I, I live with uh, a married couple and their daughter. Their daughter is my goddaughter. I, I took vows to, to help nurture her in the Christian faith. And, and I feel like that friendship has morphed into a committed, familial kind of relationship. And it's not sexual. You know, we're not, we're not sexual partners, but we are, we're like family to one another. And, and I think I would love to see more and more of that you know, characterize our Christian communities. So I'm not quite sure if that answers what you're asking, but that's, yeah. Um. Um, a couple of 
questions if possible. One quick just for uh, clarification. Um, you said orientation change is not promised, but are you saying it is possible? And also in uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 2, I just I didn't know if you, um, it says, nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Is the wife and the husband in, in the original language, is that clarified as wife and husband or is that just as spouse? Because if it is wife and husband, that seems like that would uh, rule out gay marriage. So. Um, yes, thank you. Um, great questions. Uh, yeah, so I, I am not comfortable saying that well, let me, let, let me put it a different way. I, I don't think there's much evidence at all that a 180 orientation change really happens. Um, Mark Yarhouse, who's done the most research on this uh, that I'm aware of, uh, he will use the language of there are significant shifts along a continuum of change uh, that happen. So if you think of sexual orientation as a continuum, you know, heterosexual here, homosexual here, um, there, there are testimonies of people who feel that they, they, they slide somewhere along that scale. But to go from here to here, um, I mean, Alan Chambers, who, who led the largest, quote-unquote, ex-gay ministry in this country for a number of years, said 99.9% .9 of the people he counseled in his ministry experienced no orientation change. Um, I, I, I certainly don't want to diminish or, or deny the stories. I mean, there, there are people who, who identify as gay who no longer identify as gay. And I've, I've heard those stories. I wanna celebrate um, what God has done in those lives. But, but I think if you, if, you, if you ask a little more, for a little more detail, they will often say, well, I was involved in a gay community. Um, I no longer identify with that community. I'm married to someone of the opposite sex. I'm now living, seeking to live as a Christian of a traditional sort but I still experience desire for the same sex on occasion or, or even on, you know, more than just on occasion. You know, I still experience um, uh, a sexuality that couldn't be described as 100% heterosexual. Um, that's the most common sort of story that I hear. So, so I'd wanna be very nervous about um, using the language of orientation change because I think, that it, I think that it really sets people up for false expectations, which can, which can be quite crushing to, to, to Christians who are, who are wrestling with these things. You're, 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 um, I mean, I don't have my Greek New Testament in front of me, but I'm, I'm certain that the language is gendered here in 1 Corinthians 7 too. It's, it's not just neutral spouse. I can't even think of what the Greek word for spouse would be, but it's certainly gendered terms here. Um, so I think, I think at the very least, we could say Paul is presuming, I mean, he's, he's, he's obviously assuming and presuming heterosexual marriage here. I think you would need to not just appeal to, to one isolated verse, though, to, to get a full Pauline view of marriage. You'd need to try to put it in the context of the whole Bible and view it in light of, of, of kind of the canonical trajectory. So, um, but, but yes, I think that would be another evidence that Paul is, Paul is thinking of marriage as, as male and female. Let's take one more question, Shekinah and, um, oh, Stephen. Okay, two more, Shekinah <laughs> and Stephen, and then we'll take a break. Yeah, Stephen, go ahead. Two questions. 
Uh, one, I, I just said wanna, one question. What's that? <laughs> Come on, dude. Um, well, I guess one is a statement. Um, <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> the best kind of question, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm excited about the, the, the conversation about relationship and friendship. Mm. And w the church has really missed that people who struggle in any sense, community mm. and relationships are just profound. Um, so I want to applaud that. Um, the second question is, um, now it's going to leave me. Um, why is the church so uncomfortable with celibate single people mm. in their 40s and 50s? It's a very uncomfortable place for people who yeah. are struggling. Yeah, yeah. Yes, um, yeah, I, I think there are probably a lot of complex sociological reasons for that. I mean, we, um, I think the church has, has um, in a certain sense, the evangelical churches that I've grown up in, they're, they're, we, have, we have bought into a kind of um, romanticized ideal about the nuclear family that I think can often have elements of idolatry to it. Um, you know, this is the pinnacle of human fulfillment and, and discipleship, and therefore, if you're single in your in your 20s, you know, you can, you can be viewed as someone who's still on the way to that. But if you're single in your 30s or 40s or 50s, something's gone wrong. You know, you're, you're somehow, you're somehow uh, you know, deficient or you're missing out on the, on the real human happiness. And, and I, I just think that's something to push back on theologically. I think it's something to reject theologically. I mean, you cannot read 1 Corinthians 7 and you cannot look at the life of Jesus and say that intentional uh, faithful singleness is a is a, is a is a failure. It's anything but a failure. I mean, I, I often tell my students, you know, the truest, most alive person who's ever lived was a celibate man. Um, and and this is this was not a dreary, you know, dour person. This is someone who was the life of the party. I mean, this is someone who was good fun. This is the guy who supplied the best wine at the wedding party in Cana. You know, this is uh, celibacy can be a, a life of vitality and 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 hospitality, and, and love, and friendship, and I just think that's something we have failed to emphasize enough in, in recent years, and we've got to recover that uh, as a church, so we will talk hopefully more about that after the break. Shekinah. So, in light of that, we probably will talk more about what I'm going to ask um, after the break, but my question is um, about how do we, right, so hearing you talk about the familial um, relationships and bonds that you've established, um, I'm wondering how, like, the church as a body, like, so beyond our individual relationships, but, like, the corporate church mm. can mirror this, can mirror and model the experiences that you are finding within your family, right? So how can we be a place um, where, like, obviously um, the perceptions of the world is a lot different from what we're hearing today. How can we be a place where people are still unequivocally welcomed mm. um, and where, where the, the invitation to that type of relationship is still um, real, like mm. as a church body? So again, um, I think many of us can strive for that individually, yeah. but it's challenging to think about how the church, as like the Big C Church, can do that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I hope we will talk more about that in the next in the next section. But um, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of ways to try to answer a, a big question like that. But you know, one one answer that comes to mind is just to tell you, everywhere I go and speak, I get your question. I mean, I am hearing from so many Christians in so many denominations and churches and and communities. How can we do better at this? 
And that is encouraging to me. It, I mean, it seems like there's a, there's a widespread recognition that we have gone off the rails a bit. We have emphasized you know, heterosexual romantic love to such a degree that people who are not in that, whether they're divorced or widowed or uh, never married, you know, they, they feel marginalized. We're, we're beginning to realize something's gone wrong if, if, if people who are in Jesus's position of being a celibate person are, 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 are not feeling welcome in the church. Um, so, so, you know, I think there's a lot of ways we could talk about how that, how that movement matures. How do, we, how do we live into this more and more? But one thing I would just say quite simply is um, there, there, are, there are various kinds of marginalized um, sexual minorities in every church. There, there are people like me in every church who are, who are gay, who are bi, who are trans. Uh, we're, we're, we're among you. We're not just out there in the so-called gay community. You know, we're, we're in your churches. And, and, and I, think, I think just ask us, you know, ask us what would make us feel more welcome? What would make us feel more like we belong? You know, and, and, and we're not always comfortable doing this. If you, had, if you had told me 10 years ago that I'd be sitting on a stage doing this, I would have laughed and said, no way. But, but, but usually people, if they're in church, they're happy to have those smaller kinds of conversations. And, and I would just encourage you, you know, for the, for the sexual minorities who are in your life, who are in your congregation, who are, who are among you, just ask, you know, how, how can we be your family? How can we make sure that you're not uh, sitting alone in an apartment on Friday night eating frozen pizza? You know, how can we how can we make sure that you that you have thick kinship type relationships where where you know that you belong, where you don't have to think when it comes to your emergency contact information whose name to put down. You don't have to wonder about who to call when your when your car breaks down. You know, these are the kind of nitty gritty questions we need to be asking, and and I don't think there's a easy formula or solution to it, but, but I'm encouraged that more and more of these, of these conversations are happening. So. That is a wonderful transition. Um, we cry out, Lord, may that be so for all of us. Mm. We'll take a 10, 12-minute break. Please, we have 200 donuts back there. Please, <laughs> I mean, if you're not running the 10K, you might as well gorge on donuts. So grab some coffee, have some donuts. There's restrooms down the hall. Wes will be up here. Um, in case there's a question you didn't feel comfortable to ask.